So probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible, actually, David mentioned it earlier tonight, John 3.16. Anyone ever heard of that before? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's the verse on the Bible tracks that people hand out. It's the verse that people write on the signs at the football game. It's the verse that in and out put on the bottom of their cups. It's the verse that many people are instructed to memorize when they're a child first learning some sense of the Bible. This verse, John 3.16, that talks about the gift of God's one and only Son to the world. But this week, in preparation for our sermon tonight, as I was going through this, I began to ask myself even, like, am I too familiar? Am I too familiar to be scandalized by Jesus? Am I too familiar to be caught off guard by his ways? Am I too familiar to be in awe of the Christmas story? Have I, in some ways, lost the eyes of wonder to hear a verse like this and not just go like, oh yeah, that's, the John, that's John 3.16? Have I lost the ability to have wonder? G.K. Chesterton is a British author, philosopher in the 20th century. He wrote a fair bit about the idea of childlike wonder. Um, he says that this is proved by the fact that when we're very young children, we do not need fairy tales, we only need tales. Mere life is interesting enough. A child of seven is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door and saw a dragon, but a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door. Tommy opened a door. That idea of, of wonder, of awe, of excitement. What could possibly happen when the door gets opened? But then as we get older, we get jaded and cynical and we lose wonder. We, we lose vision for life, for life itself being an eccentric privilege. And again, you may not agree with G.K. Chesterton, but his theory is that in our sin, we've grown old and that God may be even, quote, younger than we are with eyes of wonder and astonishment, and excitement, and our sin strips away our ability to have wonder at all. That's why Jesus says, for you to receive the kingdom of heaven, you have to receive it like a child, filled with awe, to marvel at life's possibilities, to have childlike wonder amidst the parts that maybe you have heard before, but it hasn't grown old. So this Advent season tonight, especially as we talk about the passage at hand, I know I, I'll just confess this, I desperately need fresh eyes. I'm 44. I grew up in the church. I've heard the Christmas story lots. I've heard John 3.16 a lot. I've read John 1 a lot. But it's this message that I believe continues to be awe-inspiring, wonder-inducing, that's actually true, revealing about God's only Son, Jesus. 
that touches our deepest longings and touches our deepest needs. So my hope and prayer even tonight is that your eyes of wonder may be restored. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Maybe you have stacks of decades of Bible reading and sermons. <laughs> but I want to talk to you tonight about the wonder and the awe of Jesus, God's Son. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up to John chapter 1, and we're going to continue in these opening lines of the Gospel of John, John's prologue as he introduces his readers to this amazing, mind-boggling one who hasn't yet been named Jesus, but we kind of find out that's who he's talking about. Here's John 1, verse 10. Again, he's already talked about the word. He's already talked about the light. And now he's continuing to explain who this is and says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John, he continues to write this introduction where he introduces all of these themes that then get teased out and played out in all of the stories in the rest of the gospel. And he's talked about who this is. This is the star of the story. This is the main person he wants you to know. And he, he again tells us at the end of John, he's biased. He has an agenda. He wants you to believe in him too, that you may have life in his name. And as he continues to describe this one, he's talked about him already as the Word, this one who was with God, this one who was God, the eternal creator God who now in this story is developing a new creation story. He's already told us about the light, the light that overcomes the darkness, and he deals with the darkness, and he reorients us on what it means to live. John's like, I want you to know this one. He's the word. I want you to know this one. He is the light. And now he goes, I want you to know this one who is the son, the one and only son. So tonight there's three things I want you to ponder about Jesus, the one and only son. And they're simple things. Again, things you could be very, if you're, if you're cynical and calloused, you could be like, nah, wake me up when he's done. But it's this simple stuff that I pray would stir your hearts again. The true story of the world. The true story of God's rescue plan. Here's the first thing I want you to know about Jesus, the one and only Son. Next slide. Is that Jesus the Son came. Jesus the Son came. Verse 10, it says that this one was in the world. Verse 11, John says, he came to his own. And that sounds so basic. Jesus came into the world. Jesus came. Do you realize what that means? He came. The one that John has just spent time saying. He is the eternal word. Everything was made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. The eternal logos, the eternal one, the eternal word, the one for whom all things belong. 
the light who shines in the darkness, the eternal creator God of overcoming light. He came. He came into the world. This is the author writing himself into the story. This is the artist who paints, painting himself on the canvas. These two words, he came. He came. It reminds us of salvation's directionality. He came to us. And that is good news. He came. They remind us about a God who initiates. It reminds us about a God who pursues you and who pursues me. You see, so much of our world, frankly, so much of our religion, our religious systems, put the onus of responsibility on us. The pressure is on us to get it right, to get together to get it together. And we know we have failed. We know we have sinned. But now fix it. Get your life together. Get your act together. Clean up your lives. Improve yourself. Do your best to ascend. Climb the ladder. Make your way to God. So much religion is that by your morals, in your parenting, by your rules in detaching from things, work harder, make it happen, figure it out. And just the weight of that gets placed upon humanity. And we are like Sisyphus of Greek mythology, tirelessly trying to roll the rock up only to have it come rolling back down. The rock of our imperfection and our sin and our brokenness rolls over us. Which is why, again, if you can have some eyes of wonder to hear it afresh, it's shocking news that the eternal word, the light of the world would come to us. He came. The longer I live and the more I experience life in this broken world, it blows my mind that Jesus came. He came when he didn't have to. Jesus came in the midst of chaos and darkness. Jesus came when the very ones that he made have chosen rebellion and sin. Jesus came out of the overflow of love between Father, Son, and Spirit. For you. I want you to stop and think about the wonder of his coming as a declaration of the pursuing love of God. A loving pursuit that really strikes at the core of our deepest longings as human beings. I think I've shared this quote before. Probably will keep sharing it. It's from Kurt Thompson in his book, The Soul of Shame. He comments that we are all born into the world looking for someone looking for us and that we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. All the games that we play, all the things that we do, all the striving we do as human beings, it comes back to this longing. We come into the world, little babies come into the world looking for someone looking for you. And we get a measure of that from our parents, though imperfectly, and we get a measure of that from our siblings, and we get a measure of that from our friends, and we get a measure of that from different people in our lives. But we have this, this innate sense of longing. I want someone looking for me. This is deeply woven into our humanity. And Advent's great truth, the great mystery, is there is someone looking for you. He came. He's come. 
for you. You may have a perfect pursuer. In the Christmas carol, O Holy Night, he appeared and the soul felt its worth. We don't often think about the carols that we sing. In his appearance, our souls begin to discover we actually have worth. In his appearance, in his coming, in his pursuit, in his willingness to lay aside and come. Do you know tonight that your soul has worth? That the eternal God says, you're worth it. I'm going to come and pursue you. You've made a mess. You have sinned. You have rebelled. You have done it in your own way, whether pretty or ugly, whether culturally approved or culturally disapproved. And yet, you're worth it. I come. I'm coming for you. He came. God is not distant. God is not grumpy or disinterested in you. He came. The Word, the Son, came. And he's coming again. And I would even say he gives opportunity to come to us each day by his Spirit. That's the first thing I want you to ponder tonight, is that Jesus the Son came. Secondly, I want you to ponder and think again about this idea that Jesus the Son was rejected. Verse 10, I'll read this again. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And again, as someone who's been to Sunday school a long, long time, yeah, 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 I know. But he came, his people didn't receive him. But if you stop and let it sink in, again, through the eyes of wonder, that kind of rejection hits home. And really, in some ways, um, it speaks about what God is like. It's actually a celebration of God's humble vulnerability. Talk about power. John 1 begins in power. John 1 begins with power and might. If anyone should be received, if anyone should be celebrated, it would be this one. Because he has always existed as the eternal word. All things made through him. This is his world. We are his. He made us. And he comes into the world that he makes, and the world that he makes doesn't know him, doesn't recognize him. He comes to his own people. He comes to the Jewish people. He comes to the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He comes to the people of Torah. He comes to the people who had it all written into their cultural story and they did not receive him. He comes and gets just a stiff arm. They don't receive him. He is rejected. And again, as I think and ponder this, Jesus is amazing that he would come and pursue, that he would come and initiate, and that he is so secure in himself that he could handle rejection and allow himself to be rejected. What kind of God is that? What kind of son is that? 
Recently, I was listening to an audiobook on a very different topic, and it had a fascinating chapter about dogs and canine pack behavior, which may sound really nerdy and way off topic, but just stick with me. And in this chapter about dogs and canine pack behavior, the author cites a person named Richard McIntyre, who specializes in wolf behavior and the alpha male stereotype. You ever heard of an alpha male before? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> big fans over here. What's the stereotype of an alpha male? Just one word thought. What? Controlling? Muscles? Macho? Aggressive? Arrogant? Jerk. Okay. Yeah. So we've we've heard we've heard the stereotype of the alpha male. What's interesting, though, in his research, he actually says that most of the things that we identify with an alpha male is actually called the insecure alpha male. And as you study it, uh, as he studies it among animals, that the insecure alpha male, his quote, they must yell, scream, bully, and attack those beneath them into submission. And it's actually his insecurities that endanger the entire group because he shows fear and lack of courage in that behavior. So he's actually, people are using that kind of canine idea of an alpha male wrong. And actually, a true alpha male wolf is different. He says a true alpha male, quote, has a quiet confidence, a quiet self-assurance, he knows what's best for his pack, he leads by example, and he's so comfortable he has a calming effect on the rest of the animals. Which I found fascinating for wolves. I found fascinating for dogs. I found it fascinating for masculinity. I found it fascinating for leadership. But I can't help but think of Jesus. And not to be too corny, but he, Jesus is the alpha and omega. He's the alpha male. He's the ultimate alpha male. He is the one who made all things, upholds all things by the word of his power. He defines all things. He makes everything. He steps into his world, comes to his own people, and rather than yelling and shouting and demanding and bullying, this is how the Son comes. Meek and humble as a baby. He steps into the world and he makes an offer. It's the offer to trust him, to believe in him, to follow him. And some people engage him and say, no. He is rejected, really as this picture of humble vulnerability in absolute strength. Do you know what God is like? But as if that weren't enough, a loving initiative. We can go to the next slide. Loving initiative. Oh, I have to read the verse. I'll read it here. Verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
Not only is there loving initiative in his coming and humble vulnerability in being rejected. This is the fullness of God's rescue plan to restore the world. This is the plan. Some rejected him. Some did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is God's great rescue plan in darkness. This is how God is going to revolutionize the world, how he's going to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, not through a superpower, not through a national force, not through an elite brain trust. God's plan to redeem the world is a family. A family and a son offering the right to become children of God by faith. Jesus' plan, the tool of Jesus the Son, is an offer to join his family. Again, that may be old hat to you. That should strike you as odd. (laughs) This is God's plan. This is God's revolution. This is the tool of the Jesus revolution. This is the tool of God's great rescue plan for the world is an offer to join a family. Jesus has come to offer you the right to become a child of God. Now you may think, wait a minute, aren't we all God's children? I think I've heard that song before. We're all God's children. And I know that there is popular teaching out there. It comes by way of media and music and all sorts of things. Uh, There is a very popular notion that every human being is a child of God. We're all God's children. I, I would lovingly challenge that idea. Biblically. I would say we are all God's creation. 100%. Made by God. We are all God's image bearers. So regardless of race or ethnicity, socioeconomic class, we are all image bearers created with equal value and worth in the image and likeness of God. Created with value, created with equality, beauty, worth, image bearers, everyone with a divine stamp. But I will say, biblically speaking, there's a difference between knowing God as your creator and knowing God as your father. And that's the offer. That you would know God as Father. That you would be an active part of the family of God. That you would, to use 1 John 3, I think I have it up on the screen. Is that up there? 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God it should stop us in our tracks that there's a kind of love in the world that exists that the father would give you the right to be called his child the right of belonging in the family of God is a right that was lost in the fall it was a right that was forfeited in our sin it was a right that humanity rebelled in the garden and we emancipated ourselves from God's family because frankly Speaking, we wanted our own way. We wanted life on our terms. We wanted our own independence. So we said, forget you. I'm doing our own things. And we, that looks differently for each one of us. But humanity has done that. And the results are severe and catastrophic. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are actually children of wrath in our sin. Image bearers. 
creation. Still with value and dignity and worth. But there's been brokenness between our relationship with the Father. So for God to save us, for God to rescue us, for God to offer us participation in the family again, it took the Son coming. It took God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. It took the eternal Word who is light, who stepped into the darkness, to offer the right to call God Father, to know Him in intimacy, to cry out, Abba, to be called the son and the daughter. So Jesus comes, he is rejected, some receive him, some don't. But here's God's plan. He's building a family of faith. He is building a plan to bless the world through those that would trust and receive him. It's an old story. It it shouldn't surprise us. He talked about this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Right after sin gets unleashed in the world, Genesis 3.15, there's this mention of the one who would come, the offspring of woman, who would crush the serpent's head. And really, from that point, there's been these family lines, the seed, the story of two seeds, the story of two families of those that trust and believe by faith and those that choose to believe the serpent's lies. And Adam fails and Eve fails and Israel fails and God sends his son and Jesus is born and the angels announce peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the way that God is doing his reclamation project is so different. It's not a message of peace on earth through more violence. It's not a message of peace on earth through stockpiling weapons. It's not peace on earth through a hostile takeover. It's not peace on earth just through political diplomacy. It's not peace on earth through creating a superpower nation to rule all nations. God came to usher peace on earth by leading a revolution of children in a family through the Son. That's God's plans for peace. He's leading a revolution of children in a family through the Son. It's the tool of the Father using His Son. The offer is faith to join a family. God's plan is to bless the world through a multi-ethnic family of children who join the family by receiving the offer of Jesus. This is how God wins. God wins by turning his rebellious enemies into family. Who would have thought? His plan is peace on earth by bestowing favor and grace through new birth into a family line. It's peace with God by becoming sons and daughters of God. It's through Jesus, the one and only Son. That's a unique road to peace. That's his offer to you again this year, this night, this season. 
believe and trust in the one and only Son, to believe in His name. This is not conventional methodology. It's not guns, wars, politics, takeovers. It's not even the conventional family. Again, he offers these three negations as he's emphasizing this. He says it's born not of blood, literally it's the words bloods, not of bloodlines. You're not born into this family by the will of the flesh. It's not something you can accomplish in fleshly means. Nor is it born by the will of a man or a male, even literally there. It's not a sexual act that allows you to somehow get into this family or to become this offspring. It's not because of your bloodline. It's not the will of flesh. It's not the will of a husband with a wife. It's God's will. God's hope for the world. God's plan for peace on earth. God's salvation project built solidly and exclusively on his will, his way. Received by faith the work of the Son on your behalf. That he would forgive you, cleanse you, re be, allow you to be reborn by the Spirit, that you would become a, a child of God as you repent of your sin and you place your trust wholly and fully in Jesus. It's a different kind of family and it's a different kind of a work. I just want to remind us, this is upside-down kingdom kind of thinking. And I may offend a few people in going through this list, but I'm going to offend anyway. God's plan through the Son to bring revolution through a family of faith, it upends our nationalism and our focus on the power of a country. I love being an American. But God's plan to restore the world is not the United States. His plan to restore the world is through a multi-ethnic family of faith, trusting in Jesus as Messiah. And so I say, kingdom of God first, family of faith first, and let the American peace fall underneath that. Grateful for my freedom, grateful for our country, but this plan of God's redemption upends nationalism. This plan of God's revolution through a family and belief in a son upends my obsession for war and violence. Because he's the prince of peace. This means of God's salvation through a family upends my reliance on pride and worldly power. Because the way of the kingdom is the way of the baby, the son, the family of God. The, the way of God's plan upends my idolization of marriage in the nuclear family as the highest ideal. Now, I am pro-marriage and pro-family. But the family of faith says, if you're single, you matter to God. The family of faith says that marriage doesn't put you in the highest class. And Jesus says, who are my brother and my brothers? 
And there's something at work in God's plan to use the family of faith that changes the dynamic that the people even in this room tonight are brothers and sisters. The way of the kingdom, the way of Jesus, the Son, decimates our racial obsession with bloodlines. Not of blood. Not of the will of flesh. Not of the will of man. But there's something God is doing for all humanity. It upends our understanding of purpose in the American dream that we just need to get married, have 1.5 kids in a house with a white picket fence. And it recenters us again on the greatest gift with the greatest invitation in the world today. The offer to you to repent and receive forgiveness of your sin, to receive grace, to believe in the Son, to gain access to the Father, and to live in the family of God. And if you haven't come to receive Jesus, to believe in his name, he has brought you here tonight to hear of his love. He came pursuing you, offering to you, not even letting your past rejection hinder his plan. He came in loving pursuit. He was rejected in the display of humble vulnerability, and his offer still stands tonight. An invitation by faith into the family of God. Regardless of your background, regardless of your parents, regardless of your ancestry, you have the ability to be part of the kingdom of heaven. You have the opportunity again, even tonight, to be transformed from an enemy into family. Oh, the wonder of the one and only Son who does for us what we have failed to do and loves us so much that he continues his pursuit even tonight to your heart, your life, our community. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, a simple story, again, one that I have read and heard hundreds, thousands maybe even of times, easy to tune out, easy to dismiss. I pray again, O oh Lord God, for a chance to receive with wonder all that you are and all that you've done. Lord, I pray for those tonight that are struggling, uh, really maybe in some ways still looking for someone looking for them. Maybe time is spent on the screen looking for someone looking for them. Maybe it's giving your heart away to someone else looking for someone looking for you. God, I pray that you would be the one who satisfies our longings and desires. We would understand the beauty of your pursuit, the wonder of your vulnerability, the grandeur of your offer, call ourselves children of God not because of our own merit but because of Jesus the son who came thank you Jesus for coming so Lord I pray for those 
even tonight, that need to receive you. Lord, those may be watching even online tonight that need to receive you, to surrender to your love. May tonight be a night of decision, a night of turning, of repentance, and receiving the fullness, Father, of your love by your Spirit. Stir our hearts, open our eyes. God, in these days leading up to Christmas Day, may the wonder of this story, may it not be lost on us. May it continue to flip our worldview right side up again. Would you make us a people that rightly declare your name? We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one and only Son sent from the Father. Amen.